listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our scripture reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until, he, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. Well, here at Trinity, we began just before Christmas a new series of sermons on the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew is the first of four Gospels that come at the beginning of the New Testament, each of which is all about Jesus Christ. All about the meaning and the significance of all of the events that revolve around him. His birth, through to his death, and his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And in the first chapter of his gospel, Matthew tells us how it was that Jesus' birth came about. He writes at the beginning of the passage that we just read in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ uh, took place in this way. And he goes on to report... How Jesus was born in extraordinary circumstances as he presents us with an account of what has, over time, become known as the virgin birth. And the virgin birth is not merely some quaint fable. It's not a mere metaphor or a myth, an event that didn't in reality happen, but nonetheless was communicated in order to teach us something. The virgin birth, according to Matthew, according to the Bible, is something that truly did occur. It is, according to Matthew, according to the Bible, a historical fact that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Christians throughout history have always confessed this to be a key teaching of the Christian faith. We sang earlier in our service a hymn based on one of those earliest Christian creeds, the Apostles' Creed. And we sang in it the the lines, Jesus Christ, the Lord exalted, who by the Spirit was conceived and of the Virgin Mary born. Those are the two key features of the virgin birth. The pregnant mother, Mary, became pregnant whilst still a virgin. 
And we're told that instead of the pregnancy being caused by the involvement of a human male, it was brought about by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And that is precisely what Matthew teaches us in his account of Christ's birth. Tells us in verse 18 that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And he reports it again in verse 20, as he reports the words of the angel who revealed to Joseph, uh, to whom Mary was engaged, that which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. And all of this, Matthew points out, fulfills an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah that there would come a day when a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Uh, Jesus Christ, Matthew teaches in our passage, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. At which point... There ought to, in some sense, uh, arise in us the desire to say, but this just doesn't happen. This is not how people are conceived and born. It is not possible for a woman to fall pregnant without the involvement of a man. And that is exactly the point here. One of the primary purposes of the virgin birth is to distinguish Jesus Christ as no mere human being. Uh, This is something uh, significantly different about him. In fact, scholars who have studied the Bible's teaching on the life of Jesus Christ often point out that Christ's life here on earth is bookended by supernatural events. Uh, Even in Matthew's Gospel, the Gospel begins with Christ's supernatural birth, and it ends with his supernatural resurrection. A Scottish theologian named Thomas Torrance once wrote that the birth of Jesus of the Virgin Mary and the resurrection of Jesus from the virgin tomb, wherein no human being had ever been laid, are the twin signs which mark out the mystery of Christ. Now, these supernatural bookends, they're designed to make us sit up and take notice that here is something extraordinary. Here is someone extraordinary. And It's interesting that Jesus Christ is presented to us as such an extraordinary person in light of the fact that you and I often find ourselves desiring something extraordinary. Uh, Not many of us aspire for things that are merely ordinary in life, but we want something more than that. We want the extraordinary, the relationship, the family, the home, the job, the skill set, the next adventure. Uh, Perhaps even the church and our experience of church. Not many of us aspire for a merely ordinary experience of these things, but we want the extraordinary. And when these things might appear to us to be all too ordinary in whatever sense, we sometimes find ourselves wondering how we might upgrade, in our minds at least, the relationship, the house, the, the career, the salary, the church. We have this peculiar longing for something beyond our ordinary experience of life. And it's interesting in light of that, that here at the beginning of the New Testament, we're presented with someone who is truly extraordinary. So I want us to look at three ways in which this extraordinary birth teaches us about the extraordinary Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, we see an extraordinary person who came to do an extraordinary work and as such possessed extraordinary character. Extraordinary person, extraordinary work, extraordinary character. Firstly, we're presented here with an extraordinary person. 
This extraordinary birth marks Jesus out as an extraordinary man. We see this in the role that the Holy Spirit plays in the birth of Christ, which highlights for us two ways in which this man is no mere man. And the first, it's only taught subtly in this passage, but it's taught more clearly in the rest of the Bible, and it's that this man is uniquely the God-man. That is to say, he is not only human, but also divine. Or to put it in another way, he possesses not only a human nature, but also a divine nature. He's the God-man. It's hinted at in our passage, first of all, with the sheer fact that the Holy Spirit is so directly involved in forming this human being in Mary's womb. The Holy Spirit, as we've prayed and sung already in our service, is himself divine, the third person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is spoken of here and elsewhere as being the active agent when it comes to Christ's birth. That is, he's spoken of as the one who brings the birth about. Uh, Now, whilst the Holy Spirit is spoken of here as the active agent in this event, Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that the entire Trinity was involved in the event of Christ's birth. We heard from Galatians 4 earlier in our service that when the fullness of time had come, God, that is God the Father, sent forth his Son, born of woman. The Father was involved in the birth of Christ. And in one of the most famous passages of the New Testament, in Philippians 2, when the Apostle Paul refers there to Christ being born... He refers to the event as the son taking on the form of a servant. That is, taking on human nature. Now, I'm aware that whenever we begin to think about the Trinity, we can easily become confused in our thinking since we're dealing with the most profound reality that there is. But here's what we see as we we bring these passages together. If the Holy Spirit was involved in bringing about Christ's birth, as we see in Matthew... And if it's also true that what was happening in Christ's birth was that the Father was sending the Son and that the Son was taking upon himself a human nature, then we see that in one very real sense, the person of Jesus Christ did not come into existence when this child was conceived in Mary's womb, but he existed prior to his conception and birth. What took place then at the virgin conception and birth was that the divine Son of God, who had for all eternity possessed a divine nature, took upon himself, in addition to his divine nature, a human nature. And what this extraordinary birth alerts us to in the first place is the fact that this extraordinary man is no less than the God-man, fully divine, fully human. All of which simply demonstrates what Matthew states quite clearly in verse 23, as he explains the meaning of one of the names given to Jesus, the name Emmanuel, which means, Matthew tells us, God with us. And yet, in chapter 1, Matthew emphasizes the role of the Holy Spirit in Christ's birth for another reason. The role of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible is what we might call, in a technical sense, a creative role. 
Now, that is to say, when the Bible speaks of God creating something, the Holy Spirit is the one who is highlighted as being directly responsible for bringing that creation into being. And we see this perhaps most clearly in Genesis 1, as we read there of how God created the world in the beginning. The first two verses of Genesis 1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then all that follows from verse 3 onwards is an account of what God created and when. And the implication of the reference in verse 2 to the Spirit hovering over the substance of the heavens and the earth which God had brought into being but had not yet formed and shaped and ordered, the implication is that the forming and the shaping and the ordering all of which takes place in Genesis 1 and 2, takes place as a result of the Spirit's work. As a result of the Spirit's creative work, we might say. In Luke's account of the virgin birth, we see this connection even more clearly between the Spirit's role in bringing about the original creation and in bringing about the birth of Christ. Luke refers to the child being conceived in Mary's womb as a result of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary just as the spirit had cast his shadow over the waters of Genesis 1 verse 2 he hovered over them Uh, Matthew doesn't use the word overshadow to highlight the connection but he uses another word to make the same point at the beginning of verse 18 Uh, the word which we translate into English as birth uh, here it's the Greek word Genesis and by choosing that word Matthew is making an allusion through a kind of wordplay back to the original creation. Now, perhaps you find that interesting. Perhaps you really don't. But here's the key point. This extraordinary birth in which the Holy Spirit plays a key role teaches us that Jesus Christ is the beginning of a new creation. Just as the Holy Spirit brought about the original creation... In the virgin birth, he also brings about a new creation. And this new creation begins with the creation of a new man, Jesus Christ. What is extraordinary about him is that he is the beginning of a new humanity. What's so significant then about the fact that Jesus Christ is the beginning of a new creation? The significance is found in recognising who it is that Jesus Christ in some way replaces Excuse me for a moment. Um, We've enjoyed using in our family from time to time uh, recently a children's catechism written by Sinclair Ferguson. And it's designed to help young children learn and understand the teaching of the Bible through a series of short questions and answers like the ones we had for our affirmation of faith. And one of the early questions of the catechism asks... How did God give me life? And the child learns to answer, God gave me life through my father and mother. Or, as we've adapted it, through my mummy and daddy. Or, as my daughter for a long time answered, through your mummy and daddy. Which I suppose is still true in a more indirect sense. Um, But the next question then asks, Has God always made people in the same way? And the answer goes... 
God made the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, in special ways. And when you think about it, you realize that Adam and Eve experienced extraordinary births, in a sense, as well. Adam was created from the dust, with no human involvement. Eve was created from one of Adam's ribs. Neither of them were conceived as you and I were conceived. Their births were not ordinary births. And this parallel between the births of our first parents, in particular the first man, Adam, and the birth of this new man, Jesus Christ, highlights that part of what makes Christ extraordinary is that he is a new Adam. Uh, You and I do not carry the same responsibility that Adam carried. Adam was created as the head of humanity. And as the head of humanity, Adam's actions at the beginning would have consequences for the entire human race. So Adam's disobedience to God had implications not only for him, but for you and I too. That is why Adam's fall from a condition of sinlessness, from a condition of flawless humanity, into a condition of sin and misery, that fall destined you and I to a condition of sin and misery too. All that we experience in terms of sin and misery, the sins that we commit and the sins that are committed against us, the misery that we afflict upon others and have inflicted upon us, we experience all of it because we are descendants of Adam and we walk in his ways. And yet here, Matthew is teaching us, is a new genesis, a new beginning, a new Adam. Jesus Christ is extraordinary because he is the God-man and he is extraordinary because he is born as a new head of humanity. Because of Adam we are all destined to experience sin and misery and yet here is a new Adam, a new head through whom we can be delivered from sin and misery. All who descend from Adam as a result of ordinary births, births like you and I have experienced, We all replicate Adam's sin and we suffer as a result of it. But here is a man who experienced a different kind of birth and who will later teach his followers that they can experience a new birth too through faith in him. And so come under his headship as part of a new humanity. Which brings us to our second point, which will be much more brief. Secondly, An extraordinary work. Uh, This extraordinary birth reveals to us an extraordinary person who comes to do an extraordinary work. Uh, We see this stated quite clearly in verse 21. Joseph was no more familiar with the idea of a virgin birth than we are. And so when he discovered that his fiancée was pregnant, uh, knowing that it was not possible for the child to be his... He decided that he would divorce Mary quietly because an engagement or a betrothal in ancient Israel was as legally binding as a marriage. And yet we read in verse 20 that as he weighed all of this up, an angel appeared to him in a dream. Both angels and dreams are significant in the Bible when it comes to God revealing something that is true and often cannot be known in any way other than by God revealing it to a person. And the angel in Joseph's dream states that the child in Mary's womb has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. He reveals that this child is a boy, she'll give birth to a son. 
And he instructs Joseph to name him Jesus. The name Jesus means saviour. And the angel explains that this is the reason why he is to be given that name. At the end of verse 21, he tells Joseph, it's clear as day, he will save his people from their sins. Here, in the clearest possible terms, we are told what is the extraordinary work that will be carried out by, the, by this extraordinary man. He will save his people from their sins. And given that it is stated so clearly in the text, I think I have a certain responsibility not to muddy this truth. What is it Christ came to do? He will save his people from their sins. Now just think about that for a moment. Our sins, the sinful condition we have inherited from Adam, and the actual sins we commit in line with our condition, are the problem that we face in life. Because of our sins, we are by nature under God's curse, and we are destined to be justly punished for our sins. That means temporary suffering of various kinds in this life, and eternal suffering in the life to come, which the Bible refers to as eternal death. What you and I need saving from is nothing other than our sins. We do not need someone to deliver us from our boredom or our frustration. We do not need someone to primarily deliver us from our sadness or our loneliness or our physical incapacities. All these things, as real and as painful as they are, are nonetheless mere symptoms demonstrating to us that we need delivering from their cause, our sins. And the extraordinary work of this extraordinary man is that he came to save his people from their sins. Now, whether you've been in church for your entire life or hardly ever before, you're probably familiar with the fact that the forgiveness of sins... It's right at the heart of the Christian faith. And yet what can happen when we're familiar with something is that we can become over-familiar with it, to the point that its significance is just somewhat lost on us. So it forces us to ask the question, are we in danger of that becoming the case when it comes to the extraordinary reality that the person who trusts in Christ receives forgiveness of sins? In churches like ours, we hear each Sunday assurance of forgiveness as an intentionally distinct element of our worship service. Are we in danger of becoming bored of it? To hear the words, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. How can we be anything except utterly astounded at those words. As we confess what we believe in the Apostles' Creed, and we get towards those short, punchy statements of faith at the end of it, one of which is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, shouldn't we have something of a wry smile on our faces as we think to ourselves, this is just amazing. My sins are forgiven. And one day, because my sins are forgiven, rather than everlasting misery... I'll enjoy everlasting life. It really is nothing short of extraordinary. He will save his people from their sins. 
At which point the question becomes, well, how? How will he accomplish this extraordinary work? And the answer is found, thirdly, in the extraordinary character that we see displayed in our passage by the man who would become Jesus' legal father, Joseph. Uh, We're told several things about Joseph in our passage. We're told, first of all, in verse 19, that he was a just man. That is to say, he prized righteousness and justice. He was honourable and had integrity. Uh, We should probably infer from the passage that he was familiar enough with the way God would at times, uh, at that time, and at significant moments, reveal to a person what is true and what should be done in response to it. Uh, we, we should probably infer that Joseph's familiar with how God would reveal himself in that way by the fact that he isn't phased by the angel's appearance to him in a dream. Instead, we're told in verse 24 that he simply woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Married Mary and did not consummate the marriage until after she'd given birth to a son, whom Joseph obediently named Jesus. Now, there are several features of this text that are interesting. Notice how God, in his sovereign orchestrating of the birth and upbringing of Christ, determined that his son would experience life without a biological father. Some of you know what that is like. Notice how God determined that the circumstances surrounding Christ's birth were the most nitty-gritty of circumstances. The scandal of an abnormal pregnancy, the prospect of divorce, which was viewed as something shameful, And all of it is in the context of almost inevitable relational tension between Joseph and Mary uh, in light of what was happening. Yet for all of these things that seem to us in one sense to be so unfitting for the divine Son of God to experience, it does seem fitting that he would be raised by a man of such extraordinary character, a just man, a godly man. A man determined to obey God's words. And Joseph's character points forward to the way in which Christ would save his people from their sins. Just as Joseph is presented here as an upright man, Christ would live a perfectly upright life. And therefore he would have no sin of his own deserving punishment. And yet more than that, Joseph here was, un, was, was willing, rather, to take upon himself what he perceived to be Mary's sin. We see that in Matthew's explanation for why Joseph had determined to divorce Mary quietly. Read in verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Uh, Joseph almost certainly perceiving Mary's pregnancy to be a result of her unfaithfulness, he was permitted not only to break off the engagement, and in the context of ancient Israelite law, divorce her, but he was also entitled to make public 
the reason for the divorce and even insists on some of the most severe punishments allowed by the law at the time to be inflicted upon her. And yet Joseph's character was such that he was unwilling to put her to shame in that way. And instead he determined that although he would be unable to marry her himself, he felt, he would divorce her quietly rather than publicly. And to divorce her in that manner would have almost certainly brought shame upon Joseph. People would have wondered why he broke off the engagement with his pregnant soon-to-be wife. And they almost certainly would have assumed by his silence on the matter that he had acted shamefully in the whole matter. And that he had failed to provide for his wife and son. And Joseph, the legal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, was willing to take upon himself the shame that would have belonged to another for her sake. It is fitting that our Lord Jesus Christ had such a noble legal father because that is precisely how he would accomplish the extraordinary work of saving us from our sins. This extraordinary man, the God-man, the new Adam, he would later willingly go to the most shameful of deaths as the most upright man who has ever lived, as a perfectly upright man. And in that death on the cross, he would take upon himself the shame of our sins. Why? Because out of his great love for his bride, the church, his people, he was unwilling for her to be put to shame. He took upon himself our shame so that we could be forgiven. There is nothing more extraordinary than that. And there is no one more extraordinary than him. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.